Refusing Erasure, Palestinian Resistance, Israel's Hopeless Fury, and a Coming Cataclysm. Mm. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive, at least here in America. The timing is interesting. The Keeping Democracy Alive show, just prior to this one, ended with a song by Pat Boone. For those young people not familiar with him, he was the whitest of white bread artists of the early 60s. He sang in this song that I played about America being land given by God to white Christian men. The show dug deep into why so many white men worship guns in America. We discovered it all boils down to taking and totally controlling land, which had been the home of a civilization which has existed for centuries, Native Americans. In preparing for this show, it hit me how much the current Israeli government got its racist sense of entitlement to the lands from our own history of erasing the Indians. So many treaties were broken, promising Native sovereignty forever. And likewise, Israel was so clearly and unambiguously created as a national home for Jews in Palestine. In fact, the founding document says, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, end of quote. As with the so-called settlement in the American West, that 1917 treaty was just the first of many to be broken. It has been observed that there is an ongoing system of apartheid designed specifically to push more and more Palestinians out of their rightful homes and ancestral lands and to populate them with settlers. Sickeningly familiar. The recent war between Israel and Gaza and the massive protests within the boundaries of Israel was sparked by evictions in early May of legal residents in a part of East Jerusalem which had long been recognized as Palestinian. The exceptionally right-wing government of Israel is open in its determination to erase the indigenous people. As the song from the movie Exodus says, This land is mine, God gave this land to me. Mm -hmm. Well, as they committed genocide against the natives in North America in the insistence that God gave this land to white Christian culture, so too are the Israelis. In fact, this accelerated pushing out of Palestinians is what caused the recent Gaza war that took nearly 300 Palestinian lives, scores of them children, and at least a dozen Israeli civilians were killed as well, both of which are horrible war crimes. Our guest today understands and teaches about American foreign policy and military history. In a new essay, Major Danny Shearson writes, the violence of 2021 will go down as just the latest round in 70 years worth of America's criminally uneven application of its supposed commitment to popular sovereignty and self-determination. His latest essay is called Refusing Erasure, Palestinian Resistance, Israel's Hopelessly Hopeless Fury, and a Coming Cataclysm. Whew. Uh, Danny Searson, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thanks for having me and for, you know, highlighting this issue in a broader sense in the way that it usually is not in most mainstream media. Well, as someone said a while ago, I don't remember who said, it's good to think with history. People rarely do. Well, Danny Searson is a retired U.S. Army officer, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, contributing editor at antiwar.com, and director of the new Eisenhower Media Network. 
His work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, The Nation, Huffington Post, The Hill, Salon, The American Conservative, Mother Jones, Shear Post, and Tom Dispatch, among other publications. He served combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and later taught history at West Point. He's the author of a memoir and critical analysis of the Iraq War, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge, and Patriotic Descent, America in the Age of Endless War. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us. And one can trace the roots of this most recent violence between the Israelis and Palestinians to three specific sparks. One being the so-called Abraham Accords done by Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. The other more direct sparks being the violent raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan, the uh, high holidays of uh, Palestinians, of Muslims. And the last straw being the evictions in the Palestinian Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem. As U.S. mainstream media tends to avoid these topics, please remind us of what things these things were and then about the impact of these events on Palestinians' rights. Take it from here. Right. So one of the things that's interesting about this is that, uh, as is typically the case, the sparks are based on land disputes. You know, it's, it's not a very large area from the river to the sea. Um, there are a lot of people living there. And this has always been a fight about land, but also about the role of religion. So that's the mosque raid uh, in the state, whether Islam or, of course, uh, you know, Judaism. And then there's the security forces and sort of the militarization of security. And so in this case, it's important to remember that this started in Jerusalem, right? The the latest spark is generally in Jerusalem, uh, even though the killing mostly occurs in Gaza, right? Uh, yes. uh, but what 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 we keep in mind here, no one ever mentions this, but by law, right, under international law, uh, it, on paper and also just common law, Israel shouldn't even be in East Jerusalem. The Israeli state, the Israeli government, I mean, it is an illegal occupation whereby Palestinians have a limited or full lack of citizenship, and they certainly shouldn't be there. Israeli security forces should not be making the rules as they go. Uh, the bureaucratic machine of you know land ownership, which is fully state-controlled almost completely, in fact, uh, in Israel, shouldn't even be there. But, but they are, right? And so that's why in my column I put in parentheses, with hyperlinks, illegal, in front of almost every single action that was leading to all of this. So the, uh, the evictions have been going on for a long time. Uh, the yeah. under Israeli law, the, these old claims, many of which go back to the 1930s, the 1940s, uh, Israeli Jewish citizens can claim with the court, can sue basically to try to have people evicted uh, and say that they should be able to return to you know land homes they may or may not have had. What's interesting is the Palestinians have no such right for their massive larger scale uh, eviction up to 700,000 people in 1948. So that's that's what's going on with the, with the evictions. And there's this horrific video that, I mean, everyone could and should watch where this Israeli settler, right, uh, is in is in this woman's basically front yard, a Palestinian woman. And he's, you know, they're arguing and she says, you're trying to steal my land. That's why I'm yelling at you. And he says, well, if I don't steal it, someone else will. And of course, the Israeli state has either fully or partly backed these efforts for a long time. Then there was the protest. Then there was the resistance, the refusal 
to be erased, the, the refusal to just acquiesce and prostrate themselves by the Palestinians. Uh, those protests, which were largely peaceful, okay, uh, and certainly not on the scale of the Second Intifada, you know, there wasn't massive violence in that sense or killing. There was then the securitization, the overreaction of the Israelis. And so now we have the third, you know, holiest site in Islam, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, raided, um, hundreds of people injured, uh, rubber bullets, flashbangs. I mean, they went in hard. They went in pretty kinetic, as we would say euphemistically in the military. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so and so this is the kind of the the sparks for the latest round of violence. But I think that what is important to say again is that this is a longer story. There's a longer backstory. And what you have is 70 years worth of Israel not really supposed to uh, control East Jerusalem, make the rules, uh, do as it wants unilaterally, up to and including unilateral annexation, uh, which the Trump administration essentially blessed off on for the first time. We'd always kind of de facto allowed it to go on, but that's what happened. And so then the story becomes Hamas's rockets. And for now, I'll kind of right. pause it there and we'll pivot. But the, in other words, you know, in many cases, uh, Israeli policy kind of sets the agenda. And then it's the reaction by Palestinians that we focus on. And I think that's a mistake. Well, that's an interesting point, allowing them to set the agenda. And, you know, and you talk about the raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that didn't get a lot of play here in America, I don't think. I mean, unless somehow I missed it, and I think I watched the news pretty uh, regularly and carefully. But uh, that was, uh, when When did that happen? Right, so the, the raid itself was only really about a, a week before the violence really, really uh -huh. kicked off. Now, but it was, but it was the first... It was it was one of many, right? This has happened before. This one just happened to be uh, a bit more violent, uh, a bit more intense, and so it, it didn't get the attention in the United States until really until Hamas flung those rockets. Right. And that's sort of how it works here. You know, um, one of the things that I've been saying on some podcasts and shows that have been on recently, including a live stream we did on on my podcast, Forks on a Hill, is, you know. The words that are used, like look to the language, as Hitchens used to say, right, Christopher Hitchens, look uh -huh. to the language. So the words we use, uh, uh -huh. flare up, right, latest flare up, latest round of violence. That's the kind of uh, language that's used in American media. It seems to be, uh, and it seems to me, that one should be paying attention to the banal bureaucratic element oh. of sort of the Israeli occupation. In other words, Palestinians are being evicted. They are being suppressed. They are being put in these like kind of open air prisons. They're being erased essentially by Jewish law, right? The, the Jewish uh, nation state law that right. says only Judaism is the official language. Arabic's no longer, I mean, it's the official religion. Arabic's no longer an official language, essentially just writing the Palestinians out of the Holy Land bureaucratically. This stuff's going on all the time. And it's real people. It's the, it's that lady arguing with the settler. That's every day. But in America, we only pay attention to the flare up. And again, the flare up tends to uh, get attention in the United States when there are rockets being fired at Israel or there's a suicide bombing or some sort of resistance uh, that's violent on the part of the Palestinians. But this is always happening. And that's what I think we need to focus on. And to get attention, you know, the, the mass media, you know, it, <laughs> If it bleeds, it leads. You know, that's the old story. And if it's uh, going on all the time, eh, it's it's not so much of a story. So it has to be, how are they going to get the attention? How are they going to get the attention? This obviously works. Well, after 11 days of war, Hamas launching untargeted rockets into Israel proper 
and massive aerial attacks on what's called an open-air prison known as Gaza. As someone with a unique understanding of military history, while a ceasefire seems to be holding, the state of war can hardly be said to be over. Hamas paraded through Gaza triumphantly shortly thereafter. Netanyahu, of course, is spinning it his way, while history always moves in unexpected directions. How is it seen by world opinion, do you think? And what's changed from previous wars between Palestine and Israel? Which side benefits in what ways? What's your sense, Danny? Well, what's interesting about that is after every one of these flare-ups, the leadership on both sides, uh, they they all claim victory. And, And the losers tend to be everyday people particularly Palestinian people who tend to bear the brunt of the bombing and the casualties. The Hamas is using the casualty counts. It's, it's using its role as the only real resistor, right? Because the, the Palestinian liberation organization and sort of the Palestinian authority under Fatah, uh, which rules the West Bank, you know, they're not really resisting anymore. They're not at war with Israel any longer. Hamas still fires rockets, right? They still resist. And so that that they are taking this upon themselves. They are, this is not a particularly democratic organization, despite the fact that they were elected uh, as their governing power in 2006. They won elections, which basically were then canceled because you know they, they voted for the wrong people, the Palestinians. They, they didn't take a lesson in American democracy, which we like democracy overseas, as long as you vote for our candidates yeah. or Israel's favored ones. But this is not an organization that I always want to defend, right? right, right. Uh, the, the, they, they attend, they bring a lot of, you know, violence onto themselves, but at the same time, and then they declare victory and they're not always great people to be ruled by, but they are resisting and Palestinians want to resist as well. They have the right to. And the question is one of war crimes and what is and what isn't right. on the Israeli side, they declare victory, but they do nothing to change the situation, uh, which is really only Israel that could change it. The economic, the political, uh, the even just the cultural existence situation of the Palestinians in Gaza. So none of the foundational causes of this war uh, have been addressed. And so that's that's status quo, though. That's the same. That happened in 2008 with uh, the first made war in Gaza, again in 2012, again in 2014. And it seems to have happened again. But there's a couple of things that do seem different. Okay. Uh, one of them is like a rumbling of some positive in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and in opinion polling among Democrats, there is way more sympathy for Palestinian statehood, Palestinian just rights in general, political rights, uh, than there has been in the past, and way more critique, overt critique, including the use of apartheid in a few few senses, of Israel. That's that's sort of a positive, in my view, a little bit less of a lopsided one-way view. Now, it's only on the left end of the Democrats, and it's only mainly the Democrats, maybe some libertarian Republicans as well, but it's stronger than it ever was. But the one that really to keep an eye on, and I have a follow-on column coming out on, is this communal warfare element. What do you mean? Uh, Really, since the founding of Israel, most of these wars, which are repeated and and regular, whether they're in Lebanon or whether they're in the West Bank Mm -hmm. and Gaza, they usually don't cause a lot of civil war-like behavior within Israel. But 20% of Israelis are Arab. Mm -hmm. They're Palestinians who didn't leave, and they have always been sort of second-class citizens, but they're starting to have a little bit more economic uh, and even political weight, but they're still sort of disenfranchised. They've generally not 
risen up. There hasn't generally been violence between them and, and the Jewish Israeli citizens. But this time there was. And there was a lot of it, including lynchings on TV, like a live street, like live on the news, like watching people pulled from cars. Um, it scared the heck out of everybody. And it really scared the heck out of Israel's leadership, which is right wing more than ever. Uh, it's, it's very militarized, but even they got scared because that's a genie they may not be able to put back in the bottle. And there's been a lot of interesting writing saying that, wouldn't it be ironic if like Israel kind of comes apart, if this Israeli state experiment comes apart, that it might not be from what they've been telling us forever, which has largely been mythology that the Arab states are still after us and they're all going to invade. That's they, they have nuclear weapons. They have the strongest army and the biggest brother of the United States in town. That's not really going to happen. And most of the Arab states really don't want to do that. They don't have the ability, the capacity or the interest in actually driving the Israelis into the sea. But if it comes apart as an experiment, it may be because society fractures. And if it does, it is largely the policies of the increasingly right wing Israeli government that have backed Palestinians into such a corner that their resistance may actually blow up in the communities. And it's empowered the most rightist. Really, it has to be said, Israeli Jewish extremist uh, minorities, but significant minorities that are like soccer hooligans in some cases <laughs> who ch- chant death to Arabs and, and are lynching Arabs and pulling them out of cars and checking their IDs. Now, the violence went both ways, but but it is the state of Israel that has more responsibility because it has more power and its policies are driving it. So that were those were the two things that I said were kind of off script for a conflict that when it quote unquote flares up usually stays on a pretty standard script. Wow, there's so much to look at here. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, retired Major Army Major Danny Searson about uh, realities underground, some military realities and political realities in uh, Israel and the Palestinian uh, population of Israel. Uh, his, his article is called Re- Refusing Erasure, Palestinian Resistant, Israel's Hopeless Fury, and a Coming Cladic cataclysm that's not so hard to say and hopeless fury you know i think that's what you were describing there about uh, sort of coming apart from the inside uh it 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 tends to I, I, you know one can picture sort of the physics of a thing exploding you know it's just uh getting out of control and you're right i think the uh the demonstrations the huge protests within israel proper that I, I think that's something relatively new, and I'm not sure they know what the heck to do about that. And, no, absolutely it is new. And observers of American media and politics know there's always the whatabouts. American reporters try to play the balance game. I'm so sick of that, quite frankly. So in condemning the Israeli aerial assault on Gaza, people say, well, but what about the rockets from Gaza? Is there not a moral equivalency? What do you think? Well, I think that, you know, I kind of jumped back in my article to the Spanish Civil War to say, look, American media has has been playing this false equivalency for some time now. And it's not just in this conflict, but of late, the last 70 years or so, this has been the conflict I think we've been worst about. Our media has been most kind of uh, equivocating about, dissembling, and they give us this false idea of balance. We have to cover these as though the two sides are moral and military equals in terms of responsibility. Martha Gellhorn, who was married to Hemingway, yes. but was an amazing correspondent in her own right. Yes. Now, by the way, some of the articles she wrote for The Atlantic about Palestinian refugees 
we're, we're, we're pretty patronizing and paternalistic. Uh, so, I mean, that needs to be said. But she called it during the Spanish Civil War, the, the balanced reporting of the fascist usurpers and the democratically elected Republican government. She said that that's, you know, she called it all that ob- objectivity, S-H-I-T, right? <laughs> she said that's what she was against. You know, she says that there is no balance in this. And I think that's been the case with the war crimes element or uh, the different kind of laws of war and how each of the two sides has done it. So if, you know, at West Point, we still as sophomores take uh, like a philosophy class, which is really like a law of war class. And we taught about juice ad bello, which is kind of the the laws regarding whether a war is moral, right? Whether mm. it is just in and of itself, like going to war, and then juice in bello, which is the justice of way, the way you fight the war. And there's basically mm. three components that you have to follow in order to fight a just war, according to this really long-established theory. Uh, and we study it, right? They teach it at West Point, which might fascinate some people because the American army has made many, uh, you know, we, we've, we've been pretty appalling sometimes too, right? We don't always follow this. Uh, Vietnam is a great example. Yeah. But the first one is discrimination. You have to do your darndest, basically, not to attack civilians. You have to discriminate and make sure you're only targeting uh, the enemy. Now, that's difficult to do in in modern warfare, where it's not necessarily two armies in uniform. But uh, the Israelis have done a pretty poor job of that in many cases. And they'll say, well, Hamas is using the people of Gaza as a human shield and they're purposely firing their rockets from civilian areas. Some of that goes on. However, uh, when you maintain an open air prison, which is one of the most densely populated patches or strips like the Gaza strip on earth, uh, you create a situation and you don't let people really in or out, right? You have it blockaded for many, many years. You create a situation where it's inevitable that you're, you're not going to be able to discriminate. You're creating the situation where there's no, real option for Hamas in some ways, okay? That's not to say that Hamas doesn't ever uh, use those deaths or hasn't ever done, you know, human shield use. But, like, let's be clear, uh, the Israeli military is brutal. When the defense minister says out loud, publicly, uh, Gaza will burn, I mean, that is stating a lack of sort of discrimination. But the second one, I think this is important, is proportionality. Proportionality. In other words, Hmm. you, you... have to only use as much force as is necessary, and specifically, uh, the moral, you know, kind of judgment of that force's use is: is the risk of killing civilians, the proportion and amount that you're going to kill of them, is that going to actually uh, have a meaningful effect that makes it worth it? Mm. And so, when you have a situation in this case where it's twenty to one, uh, Palestinian civilians deaths versus Israeli civilian deaths, then you know, that's pretty out of proportion. Of course, it's been as high as 100 to 1 in previous cases, like 2014, where it was like 1,400 Palestinian civilians versus six Israeli civilians. The reality is that the Israelis gain nothing, essentially, from these attacks. The status quo stays in place. Hundreds of Palestinians, including children, are killed. They don't particularly matter, right? They don't get reported with the same energy as the 12 in this case i think it was 12 israelis killed uh, i think 11 of whom were civilians including two children so this is the, the, there is no equivalency in the response or even in the capacity and ability to cause civilian deaths so while i don't support hamas sure. flinging rockets without really being able to differentiate or discriminate where they go or even necessarily meaning to the proportionality is so weighed the other way and the final one that is talked about less is responsibility meaning that in these things Usually in these conflicts, usually one side has 
an inordinate amount of power, way more power, yes. way more ability to change the situation, to decide whether to, you know, to do the bombing or not, decide whether to create the situation where there's grievance or not, and that the more powerful party, the one with more influence, bears more responsibility. And so this is, you know, with great power comes great responsibility kind of thing, the trope. Well, Israel, the lopsided nature of their power is unbelievable. Therefore, they bear more of the responsibility. Only Israel could really change the terms of the game. Only Israel could really change the foundational grievance machine that is their policy that ends ends up empowering Hamas. It's almost as though the two sides need each other. Yeah. Like Hamas needing this Israeli enemy to 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 act, you know, horrifically in their policy towards the Palestinian people, which then the people turn to Hamas as their only outlet of sure. resistance. Mm. And the Netanyahu government needs Hamas as kind of this bad guy to deflect attention from their own corruption, his own indictment. So that's that's the strictures of this. And uh, on discrimination, proportionality, and responsibility, I got to say. Uh, time and again, Israel has really failed the test. And because they're more powerful, the fact that Hamas also fails that test does not have the same equivalency as it gets reported in American media. And, you know, there's something about uh, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And one of the big differences between Israel and Hamas is uh, delivery systems. <laughs> you know, they they don't, in, in, in the Gaza Strip, what kind of delivery systems do they have? They dig tunnels at least in theory, and they shoot rockets. But the delivery system capabilities of Israel is massive. I mean, it's everything. And and again, being familiar with military strategy, as you are, and military justice, given that the world knows that Israel's vast military might is heavily subsidized by the United States, does the war on Gaza have implications for us, like in Europe Asia and Africa. Your thoughts, Danny? Well, certainly, if if there was a trial held by you know aliens who didn't know anything about the backstory, right? They just they just saw the facts and they they didn't they weren't tainted by the different biases. Like you know, visitors from another planet came and they held a trial uh, on America's role in this conflict. I think that we would that we would be put in prison. Uncle Sam would be thrown in in jail, and the key would be thrown away, and it would be for criminal conspiracy, uh, criminal aiding and abetting, criminal complicity. I think we would actually lose that trial. It would be a quick deliberation by the jury, and we'd be out because the United States is wildly and lengthily complicit in Israel's policy and in Israel's violence, up to and including record military aid, oh, yeah. uh, the planes and the ordnance that is, you know, flown and dropped on the Palestinians is almost always coming from American sources. Uh, part of the deal for the $3.8 billion annually military aid package is that Israel is supposed to buy, supposed to use that aid and only buy from American war industry, military wow. industrial complex wow. companies. Uh, they don't always follow that, by the way, but that's what that's the letter of the law, basically, and that that's the deal, right? Uh, and and that in and of itself is pretty obscene. It's pretty obscene, and so I think it's particularly bothersome when the American media reports this so irresponsibly and so lopsidedly, and with so much whataboutism, always pointing to Hamas as yeah. as the the worst party, because we have provided that military, but we also provide diplomatic top cover. I believe it's 42 times that the United States has essentially vetoed a resolution that would have 
held Israel even rhetorically accountable for their illegal uh, occupation and and various war crimes at a macro level against the West Bank mm-hmm. and Gaza. So I think the United States has to uh, be held accountable for that. It needs a moral soul searching. And I'm just happy to see, even though we're not close to far enough, I'm happy to see that there's more of a willingness, at least in one wing of one of the parties and a growing wing mm-hmm. to say so. To say so, because if the first thing is admitting that you have a problem and that you are wrong, and then we can move forward. But we haven't even been willing to do that yet. But finally, we're getting to that step almost. Yeah, I think people are starting to see it. And some of the pictures that we've seen and, uh, you know, people people may not read as much as you or I would like, but they see the pictures and they're pretty amazing destroying those those buildings, destroying the uh, the building that held the uh, offices of uh, Associated Press and Al Jazeera, you know, that people go like, what? Wait a minute, that's a bit much. So I wonder, you know, Europe, Asia, and Africa, they've, my sense is they've long been kind of sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, but I wonder what this current uh, new situation, how that may affect it. Will it just ramp it up, or, or do you think there'll be real changes there? And you know, any kind of adverse effects on uh, on U.S. you know diplomacy and and our economy. David Petraeus, not a hippie, <laughs> <laughs> no. a pacifist type, right? This yeah. is a pretty pretty militarist, interventionist guy who said he wants the Afghan war to be a generational war, and basically, you know, he's never met a problem counterinsurgent can't solve. Even he got himself in some hot water back when he was still a four-star general commanding the surges in Iraq and Afghanistan, when he said that American policy towards Israel, he didn't necessarily make a judgment on whether it was right or wrong. He just stated the fact, and it is factual, that America's one-sided policy towards Israel is one of the primary motivators of insurgents throughout the region that Mm. his troops then have to fight, and that the blowback from that creates basically more enemies than we could kill. I mean, even I mean, he said it in polite language, but that's essentially what he said. And it caused a bit of an uproar, right? The uh, the Israel lobby uh, and, and elements within the conservative kind of um, Christian Zionist, evangelical Zionist movement here, the alliance between the most conservative of politicized Christians in America and the right wing of the Israeli government. Yes, uh, there there is a blowback from this. Um, I can't tell you the number of homes that I went into in Iraq in particular where, you know, that they wanted to talk about Israel. They would yell at me about that. Sometimes there'd even be uh, like the Al-Aqsa Mosque might be uh, on a banner on their wall inside their house. I worked in the Beladiat neighborhood briefly of East Baghdad, which is where the Palestinian refugees who went to Iraq, about 45,000 of them in total, they mostly lived there. Uh, And they were being targeted and executed by Shia militias. They were very much you know, being victimized and also partaking, but largely victimized by the civil war that was going on. And, you know, some of these people would talk to me about, you know, I even had someone show me the key right to their house from 1948, mm. this old, old man. Everyone has heard these stories who reads about uh, Israel, Palestine. But I mean, I had it in my face. This has an enormous effect. Now, what's interesting about international opinion, and I'll just focus on the uh, the Islamic League states, right? So at North African and the Gulf states, mm-hmm. four countries made peace as part of these basic Abraham Accords under the Trump administration. They essentially normalized relations with Israel. And the idea was, and this was an, uh, this was an abandonment of the Palestinians. There was no mention of them. This I, I called it at the time, peace without Palestinians. Mm. In other words, all these countries, and we're talking Sudan, uh, Morocco, and then of course the UAE and Bahrain, 
they decided to normalize in order to get intelligence sharing and some uh, arms deals from both uh, Israeli companies and the American military industrial complex. And they were counting on that. They were counting on the fact that no one would really care that they that they were abandoning the Palestinians because the longtime position of everyone basically in the Arab League was no peace with Israel unless they stop the occupation. Right. Unless right. they give a state to the Palestinians. Pretty reasonable. Well, they all went back on that. Those four countries did. Trump thought this was some great transformational peace deal. Netanyahu couldn't help but agree. But what happened in this latest Gaza, quote unquote, flare up, right, this bombing, this mass civilian death, the people of those countries who never really got counted on because they're generally dictatorships or quasi dictatorships, they rose up in protest in pretty significant numbers. And I think that what that shows is the paltry, tenuous and really unstable uh, nature of this like false peace plan that Trump put forward of having these countries normalized. I don't think it's going to hold the the solidarity on the Arab street with the Palestinians, which is uneven and halting, but always sort of there. Oh yeah, is not going to necessarily long term allow their governments. And I don't know how it's going to end, but it might be chaotic. Uh, they are not just going to acquiesce to their dictatorial government saying, yeah, you know what? We forgive Israel, forget about the Palestinians, because there's a lot of sympathy uh, on the Arab street, you know, to use the cliche that remains. And that was demonstrated for us. And I think that that is interesting and continues to have effects, because as long as America is seen as the big brother of Israel that allows all this, which it has and does, that is going to cause a lot of anti-American sentiment. And there is a reason why in global polling of the who's the greatest threat to peace on the planet. Oftentimes in these international polls, number one and two, will they change order sometimes, is the United States and Israel. And we're like, why in the world would that be? And I'm not necessarily agreeing that that we really should be number one and two. Hmm. What I am saying is it's interesting and instructive that other people think so. But we're like vampires who can't see our own reflection in the mirror and can't imagine why we'd be so hated. But the people of the world, especially Africa, Asia, and and the greater Middle East, have long felt this way. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're creating enemies for the next generation of American soldiers to feel it has to go fight. Oh, my goodness. It's so... And and I'm reminded when you were saying, uh, you know, peace without Palestine. Yeah, I'm reminded after World War I, there was a peace talk without Germany. And how did that go? Not particularly well. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, retired uh, U.S. Army Major Danny Sherson. We're talking about his article, Refusing Erasure, Palestinian Resistance, Israel's Hopeless Fury, and a Coming Cataclysm. And I do believe that, I mean, for example, the, the Saudi war on Yemen, they know where those bombs are coming from. And my sense is Saudi Arabia and many other countries, the governments there, the dictatorial oligarchical governments there, they fear their own people. And so they're trying to, you know, they're in a, a tough position, but I would think that the Arab street, as as is said, uh, that they do not favor the U.S. and Israel. They know where the weapons are coming from. They know, you know, who's paying the the, the highest cost of, of all these wars. And... Uh, you know, so it's bigger than just Israel and Palestine. I get the sense. So the Palestinians are not about to to lay down and give up. So you know, the use of rockets is is you know, it's no one's justifying Hamas's use of rockets to indiscriminately attack. 
But I wonder what other forms of resistance they have as options. They're not going to give up. Is there a diplomatic possibility? And what options were open after what happened in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood where they were evicted, just plain, you know, illegally evicted? So what else can they do? Well, this is one of the subheadings in my article. I talk about how should Palestinians resist, you know, because if you believe the Netanyahu government's rhetoric and much of especially during the Trump years of most American administrations and most media, apparently Palestinians almost alone among the people of this planet are expected to show like a monk like stoicism yeah. in the face of what's coming up on almost a century of suffering, suppression and essentially political and cultural erasure. And, and so when the militants, you know, desperately, and I think that's kind of the word, like desperately and frustratingly resist in the one way that they have available, which is these rocket attacks, which, again, I, I feel like we don't even need the caveat, but without justifying right. the indiscriminate firing, what other options do they have? Because Israel has very carefully, always with the support and backing of the United States, the top cover. Israel has basically erased all other opportunities for resistance besides bombardment with cheap and mostly inaccurate rockets. Uh, it's been systematically circumscribed. Protesters are jailed wholesale. Uh, human rights activists, cultural institutions even have been shuttered. Uh, so if newspapers in the Palestinian territories, especially East Jerusalem, now even social media is being widely censored. Facebook complicit in that uh, with policy letters basically coming up with ways that, you know, you can uh, they can look at Zionists, the term Zionist as a proxy for the word Jew in, in order to like label it as hate speech and get rid of it. The Save Sheikh Jarrah hashtag that started to go viral, uh -huh. those posts were being removed oh uh, when it started trending. And uh, so what is left in terms of resistance? A lot of the other options have been circumscribed and they've been bureaucratically written out of the the law written out of existence. The Palestinians have they're not given citizenship. The people of East Jerusalem in particular live in a really strange limbo between military occupation and you know, general residency in the Israeli state, they have to pay taxes, but they can't vote uh -huh. right in Israel. Uh -huh. So that's, that's fascinating, right? I mean, one would even think in fact that the sort of political descendants of old Patrick Henry, yes. taxation without representation, right? No taxation without representation might be more sympathetic to the Palestinians. The fact that we're not generally as Americans, especially American political leaders, it's fascinating. It indicates something, right? Why is it that Palestinians do not garner the same sympathy as Israelis? Is it racial? Is it religious? Is it just that they happen to live uh, in, unluckily and inconveniently on a spot of the planet where we've decided ostensibly our partner and ally in the region uh, it also exists? I mean, there, it's a very difficult situation to be a Palestinian. But what has been really remarkable is the resiliency yeah. of these people because – they, did, they are refusing erasure. Uh, but I think we have to be very careful about just attacking Hamas's tactics without also stating, A, what we've already talked about, the backstory of repression that's causing this. And also, someone needs to explain what outlets are available for Palestinian resistance. It seems to me they've been, again, systematically circumscribed over a long period, like a frog that doesn't notice that it's in boiling water. Yeah. It's just been worse and worse and worse. And now you can't even criticize Israel in many cases on social media. Well, if we don't frame Hamas's resistance in that context, I think we're doing a disservice to understanding what's really happening over there.
And you say it's interesting that the so many things that we don't learn from history, and you know the the uh, I think you know one of the important things uh, to hold up a myth is the erasure of what's inconvenient. And for example, you know, no taxation without representation. Do we not? You know, we're not supposed to apply that elsewhere, I guess. But you say. In, in terms of, you know, relative to American history, the language used by Netanyahu is not new. We've sensed some of it before in American history. What about some of the uh, language used by Netanyahu that's uh, familiar? You know, I think that if we look at some of the key figures, Netanyahu and some of the key people in his security cabinet, right, what you notice is they actually are attempting to sort of erase Palestinians or even the viability of a Palestinian sovereignty, let alone a state. And they're very overt about it and very recent. So the idea I was saying, how should Palestinians resist? I could also ask the question, why shouldn't they resist? Why shouldn't they resist in the most desperate and any way possible when the people leading the government that's oppressing them are so overtly right wing to the point of saying that Palestine doesn't exist or Palestinians essentially don't exist. So let's just look at a few examples. Uh, on Instagram in March 2019, Netanyahu writes in his comments, Israel is not a state of all its citizens. According to the basic nationality law we passed, which was the year before, Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and only it. And then in 2014, in remarks at a press conference, he says, I think the Israeli people understand now what I always say, that there cannot be a situation under any agreement in which we relinquish security control of the territory west of the River Jordan. I mean, translating that, he's saying there can be no fully sovereign Palestinian entity, let alone a real state, in illegally occupied West Bank and Gaza. The whole land from the river to the sea, we're going to maintain control. Uh, in 2020, he also said that about the Jordan Valley enclave, so right along the Jordan River, right, the Palestinians who live there, uh, Israel unilaterally annexed the territory. And in May 2020, he said, you don't need to apply sovereignty over them, the Palestinians. They will remain Palestinian subjects, if you will. Subject. I mean, this is this is crazy talk, right? So what I'm saying here is, I mean, and Benny Gantz is the defense minister. He's supposed to be the moderate, right? He ran against Netanyahu a few times. He's the quote unquote moderate alternative. He said in the first speech launching his political career in January 2019, he said, we will strengthen the settlement blocks and the Golan Heights, both of which are illegal. The Jordan Valley will remain our eastern security border. We will maintain security in the entire land of Israel. United Jerusalem will be built, will grow, and will remain forever the capital of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. That, that's, that language is so off the rails to the, to the right, but it is now mainstream. Mm. And the Israeli left, the Israeli opposition, there used to be a real movement within Israel yes. politically that was supportive of a two-state solution, that had some sympathy for the Palestinians, that opposed settlement, and that opposed the occupation. What happened to they them? They aren't even a viable political force anymore. That That's that's amazing. And, you know, talk about er erasure. And obviously, Israel learned from uh, their uh, neighbors across the pond that supply them so many weapons from our history that uh, we got away with it. We wiped out, we erased, basically, the uh, Native Americans, the indigenous people who actually lived here. They've got to think, well, America got away with it. We can too. I don't know. Maybe not. But, you know, people say, talk about racism. And when Donald Trump was so fixated on building a wall where he said, oh, yeah, people from Scandinavia, sure, they're welcome here. But it was widely recognized for the racism that it was clearly racism. 
please tell us about the walls affecting Palestinians. That's not all that well known. Well, you know, you mentioned the ties between the United States and the parallels between the United States and Israel. And to begin with, both are settler colonial enterprises. You know, there are certain states in the world. And oh, by the way, the states that tend to be more sympathetic to Israel are themselves one-time settler colonial enterprises, right? Where essentially people from a European country came, literally took the land and either uh, killed, displaced, or put on reservations or something like the Gaza Strip, open-air prisons, remove the people, right? Remove the existing people who live there. So the states that are examples of that, of course, are the United States, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and of course, South Africa, right? And of course, South Africa, when it was apartheid South Africa, when there was white minority rule, the closest ally, including illegally sharing nuclear secrets, right, this has all been released now, was the apartheid South African regime was very close with Israel, very close. Uh, and that's instructive. But the wall parallel is interesting, too, because both sides, the United States and Israel, it's not a one-way relationship. They learn from each other. They borrow from one another. And they put in policies that are very similar. So Trump loves walls, right? Build yes. a big wall, a big, beautiful wall. It's mm-hmm. going to be beautiful. I'm like, I don't know if you've ever seen a wall with barbed wire on top. It's not beautiful. It's, mm. kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of dystopian. But the wall that we're talking about that has illegally been built uh, essentially walls off the West Bank. And in the process, it actually takes – it annexes just physically some of the land that's supposed to belong to a future Palestinian state. Uh, and it squirms through the West Bank and then through East Jerusalem. And it, this wall has made life for Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, and especially in East Jerusalem, unbearable by design, as I call it. And and the reason is uh, what what is ultimately wanted, and they say it on the Israeli right, at least they say this overtly, is is they don't want the Palestinians there, right? They want this to be a Jewish only state, and they want to make life essentially so inconvenient that they, they'll just leave. They're not wanted there in the first place. So in East Jerusalem, the security wall, as they call it, uh, it snakes through neighborhoods that used to be adjacent. It cuts them off. It cuts people off uh, in the West Bank from the land they farm. It forces Palestinians to go through innumerable checkpoints that can take hours and hours. Mothers have died and lost their children in childbirth waiting to get through these checkpoints on numerous occasions because they can't get to the hospital. Um, there are just like in Iraq with the American army, there are plenty of accidental shootings at checkpoints. Uh, you got scared soldiers, right? Especially during the second intifada when there were suicide bombings. Uh, this wall is illegal because it is, uh, you're not supposed to move your own people in like settlers because there's special highways, by the way, that go through this wall yes. that are settler only Jewish only highways. Yes. Can you imagine this? It's the definition of apartheid. I mean, it's an incredible, I don't even think we had that in the American South. At the height of Jim Crow, do we have separate highways? I don't think so. Uh, not officially, but they do. And so the wall snakes through all this. Uh, it's part and parcel of the gradual, systemic uh, annexation and what they call, and this is a real word that gets used, Judaization policy in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. The goal is to make Jerusalem the unilateral sole capital only of Israel, but that is not legal. According to the 1947 U.N. partition plan, it was supposed to actually not be owned by either side. It was to be an international city. Right. And according to international law after 1967, it, East Jerusalem is supposed to be the capital of a future Palestinian state and West Jerusalem essentially the capital of an Israeli state if they want it. But Israel says no. 
illegally, they've unilaterally annexed and declared that all of Jerusalem is united and that it'll be their sole capital. And even the quote unquote moderate like Benny Gantz said the same thing in his first speech politically after he retired as a general. Uh, When I was growing up, and I I am Jewish, when I was growing up, I I remember hearing that people defending, uh, uh, you know, taking over uh, all of the Palestinian land are saying, well, why didn't the other Arab countries take them? They should have taken the uh, Palestinians who were leaving. I thought that was interesting. Never mind that people, you know, kind of would like to be able to stay in their homes. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, uh, retired uh, U.S. Army Major Danny Searson, who's uh, got a couple of books out, Ghostwriters of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge, and Patriotic Descent, America in the Age of Endless War. And we're talking about uh, refusing erasure, Palestinian resistance, Israel's hopeless fury, and a coming cataclysm. And I've got to make sure we get to the coming cataclysm part. And of course, being Jewish, I can't help but note the increases in anti-Semitism in Europe and in America. I sometimes wonder about the misunderstanding between the state of Israel and Jewish Americans and Jewish Europeans. How do policies, what are your thoughts? How do policies of the Israeli government affect anti-Semitism in Europe and America? There's no excuse for, you know, anti-Semitism, regardless of, you know, policies of the Israeli government. So I don't want to sound like, oh, they're bringing it upon themselves. That's not what I'm saying. What I think is true is that the there's a gap. Right? There's a there's an experiential and really even an understanding gap between the increasingly right wing uh, political entities that are dominant in Israel and the opinions and experience of uh, Jewish people in Europe and in the United States. Um, and what I mean by that is the, the policies have gone so far off the rails in Israel. It's gotten so obscenely anti-Palestinian and sort of almost ethnocratic rather than democratic in terms of. But but that hasn't really filtered to the opinions which are really stuck in like 1993 in the Oslo Accords. Uh, the people uh, across the pond in the United States, many Jewish people there are still speaking the language of, OK, well, maybe there needs to be a two state solution. And and that's even just the mainstream discourse. But of course, what is not really understood is that Israeli policy is really state policy, not about Israelis, but the, the government. I mean, there is some responsibility in terms of who they elect, but their elected leaders have created a situation where they've made the two state solution essentially impossible. They've precluded it by kind of writing away the Palestinians, writing away their rights, their ability to own land, their ability to have an entity and just annexing and settling so much of it that it looks like a patchwork, not even of Swiss cheese, because Swiss cheese uh, doesn't have half as many holes and enclaves as the West Bank does. But that that policy fires up the existing forces of anti-Semitism, because while it is reasonable, and I think uh, mandatory, right, morally, to critique Israeli policy, Israeli state policy, the folks who already are inclined to anti-Semitic opinions, anti-Semitism is a very real force, right? I don't need to tell anyone that. Yeah. The, the, the actions of Israel, of its government, fire that up, yes. make it worse. And also, of course, and, and that's true in Europe and the United States, I mean, there was just graffiti. I'm, I'm from Staten Island, New York, right, which is kind of Trump territory, or at least uh, the majority still is. Ooh. I mean, I was reading their newspaper this morning. There was uh, someone graffitied 
you know, uh, like a Jewish community center there that just happened like last night. I mean, this really is happening. Uh, but in, in the Middle East, though, in the greater Middle East, I believe that Israeli policy is also it's counterproductive very much like yes. American policy is, which creating more, quote unquote, terrorists or at least creating more resistance that they, they there is a price to be paid, you know, reaping what one sows. If if the opinion of the Arab peoples is so becomes so strongly anti-Israeli, it is only going to increase the likelihood of conflict and then create the situation where Israel then feels it has to respond even more aggressively. And we get caught in this loop. But Israel is a militarized society yes. that is just sort of at war all the time. <laughs> Not all of that is its fault, but it is more and more the case that it's creating the problems it then needs to solve, but it can't solve them, and in the process creates more problems. And a lot of people don't recognize the very significant difference between uh, a nationalism and a religion. You know, I, I have a religion, but I'm not, I don't like nationalism in general, especially militaristic racist nationalism. It used to be that Israel was known as the only democracy in the region. Is it more accurate to call it, you use the word ethnocracy. What, is, what does that mean? That's right. So, uh, you know, a, a situation where the one ethnicity or one ethno-religious group, in this case, Jewish Israelis, um, are dominant and the state's function is increasingly has has increasingly become to protect the rights and the political liberties of just that one entity in in a true democracy there would be uh, equal sovereignty forgetting about the two-state solution even forgetting about a palestinian state putting that aside i should say within israel within the boundaries of the area it controls which is from the jordan to the mediterranean sea where it where Israel is prime primary right where it has the control the power the economic power the political power the military power uh, in a real democracy everyone would vote everyone would have equal protection under the laws all the things that are so part and parcel ostensibly to our own experiment would exist there but through things like the basic law which is the equivalent of like a constitutional amendment under their parliamentary system which says that this is a state only for the Jewish people, that they are the only ones with true rights, that it, even calling it a Jewish state is sort of by a, a just, just Jewish state is by definition sort of an ethnocracy. And I think that there is a gap between the way Americans and even in many cases Jewish Americans or Jewish Europeans and certainly uh, other European leaders, the way that people view what Israel is versus what it actually is there's a huge gap mm. we are very much stuck in the older view that's a little bit obsolete quite obsolete now that you know israel is this like small you know kind of victim country that is bit you know plucky and kind of holding out right it's the only democracy it's it's, it's all its neighbors want to drive it into the sea you know it's very much the david and goliath scenario right but the reality is that uh, in more and more the israeli government, its military power, its nuclear program, which it still won't admit to officially, but everyone knows they have, is very Goliath-like. And yeah. and the, there's a whole lot of Davids, millions of them, living in the Gaza Strip to run with the analogy. And wow. yet, mm. opinion has not caught up with the situation today, whereby Israel is the more powerful actor and, the in many cases, the oppressive actor. The fact that it's done bureaucratically as much as it is with bombs is not very great to read mm. about it's not very exciting reading you said mm -hmm. it bleeds it, it leads 
And that's part of the reason, part of the reason, I think, that it doesn't get that kind of coverage. And that, that's, a, that's a huge problem. So I think we have to call Israel what it is. We have to name it uh, and name its policies. Uh, and if, and if, if they are obscene, if they are unfair, if they are purposely discriminatory, then we have to call that out. I think there is an intellectual consistency that requires us to do that that is should not necessarily be affected by the fact that the Jewish people went through by far the worst catastrophe and victimization probably in human history. Yes. That is true. That can be true. And the policy of the Israeli state 70 years later can be wrong. Those are not mutually exclusive. And I really wish we could have the courage to do that. Yes. Yes, I think so. They try to justify too much based on that horrible, you know, unspeakable thing from so many years ago. Bernie Sanders had a terrific column in the New York Times very recently in which he ended with the words, Palestinian lives matter. I sense some possibilities, maybe, for U.S. policy change. I mean, I try to be optimistic. What's, what's your sense? We'll go out on that. You know, there is, there is a real natural um, sort of alliance, experiential parallel between the Black Lives Matter movement or the broader African-American civil rights movement and Palestinian freedom struggle. And it's, it's increasingly obvious through the kind of anecdotal but instructive case of George Floyd. And I think it behooves any of us who are even vaguely sort of uh, involved and active in, in BLM type movements, in social justice movements in general, to recognize those parallels and show solidarity with the Palestinians. The, the reality is that much of what I'm describing, and this will be in my next column on the kind of civil war element and the, and the street violence, much of what I'm describing throughout this interview and in my column would read as very, uh, very familiar to folks who lived under Jim Crow in the American South, oh. to African Americans. Yes. Uh, I mean, the zone, and though even the stuff that happened in the North, the zoning laws that were used oh. to segregate neighborhoods, and still are, but that put yes. in place this de facto segregation. Boy, does that sound a lot like some of the stuff that goes on, like I said, the banal bureaucratic element mm -hmm. of suppression. Mm. This is all the same. The highways that are for you know Jews only, mm. and uh, the, the 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 not voting, right? The voter suppression. Geez, we had to have a voting rights act in, in the United States. Maybe Israel needs one. Mm. I mean, no one ever talks about this, but I'll tell you who sees it. I'll tell you who sees it. The Palestinians see it because you can drive along that security wall in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and see murals to George Floyd on that wall oh and, and and palestinians and their protest movements were holding up blm signs mm. now the american movements for social justice have usually needed to catch up they've been a little behind but i will tell you i've seen it personally in the streets and i've seen way more pictures of it you're starting to see palestinian flags uh yes. solidarity among the blm yes. movement that yes. i think is a positive development and the fact that bernie sanders uh, a, a jewish american by heritage right yes. Uh, and and a prominent, maybe the most popular political figure in America today, right? Yes. He's, he's a very prominent guy. The fact that he would be the mouthpiece for such a simple uh, term as Palestinian rights matter, that actually is fairly profound. Yep. Uh, and I think that is there is there are rumblings of positivity to cross transnational sort of solidarity. Um, I think, you know, there was like Jesse, Suisse, Charlie, you know, like we right. are all Palestinians. We are all George Floyd and, and we are all one thing. And, and, and as squishy as that sounds, I think if we're going to be social justice advocates, then that has to be consistent and it has to be widespread. And no one should be uh, 
to find out of that. No one should be precluded because, you know, the least among us, if you're into the Sermon on the Mount, all the major religions have some version of that uh, in their general philosophy. And I, I think that we have to we have to build on that positivity. And I'm really happy to see certain politicians doing it. And I'm not known for being a will-eyed sort of optimist, but I think we have to point out the positivity that's out there. Danny Sherison, thank you so much for being with us and, and providing shedding so much light on this, uh, this area. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive and uh, maybe some degree of hope. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me.